questions, I would like to examine and discuss the following very gradual development of what we term sacramental confession. Sacramental confession. Secondly, I wish to talk about the order for sacramental confession. That is, the present order, the one we find when we look in one or another of the church's service books. And, of course, it does depend to some extent on which service book you look into. There are all kinds of service books. Uh, uh, there are those intended entirely for popular use. And we shouldn't confuse those with official service books. Many times they just have in them popular use. Or they might even have in them the parish use, whatever they have in one place or another, including photographs. You know, you have these, these books. We even have a little one which we produced, that is our, our press years ago, of the Divine Liturgy with photographs. And you'll find this in one or another parish. And this is what the faithful use. Don't confuse that with uh, something on an official level. The church's service book or service books. And of course, then there are various traditions of service books in a major sense. I don't mean Passaic, New Jersey versus Watervliet, New York. I mean in a broader sense, the Greek tradition, the uh, northern Slav uh, tradition, the southern Slav tradition, etc. But one finds a, 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 whole, a whole lot of different things often mixed together. For example, in the uh, Antiochian service book, which for years was the official service book of the Antiochian Archdiocese. I'm sure it's supplanted now by the Liturgicon, which uh, uh, Bishop Basil Essie produced. But it always struck me that in that book, uh, representing the Church of Antioch in America, one had an order of uh, confession, which included uh, prayers found in the uh, popular level Russian Day Committee, Lackawanna County, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, order of confession, which was a conglomerate of Uniate uses, Mogilan uses, etc., etc. Here we found it in the Antiochian service book. So there are all kinds of things like this that we have to be aware of. A lot of confusion, in other words. And Professor Erickson, in the article that uh, uh, Paul uh, Meyendorf uh, cited yesterday about penitential discipline, makes the statement that no sacrament, no sacrament, including the Eucharist, that means, despite uh, how much you might have been crushed last night mm. by the overwhelming development that has indeed taken place there over the centuries, he says that no sacrament has changed as much as sacramental confession. We can find lists of sacraments, for example, which, which don't even include a confession. We have baptism and Eucharist on the shortest list, and then many others on the longer list, which says 12, and then the open-ended list, which says the whole church is the sacrament of God's kingdom. And Father Alexander Schmemann writes a book about the Eucharist in 12 chapters, and each chapter is called a sacrament. So it means the sacrament of sacraments not only crowns all the sacraments, but it's made up of 12 sacraments, etc. You know, you can just go on and on with this. But he makes that point. No sacrament has changed as much as 
sacramental confession changes in a major way going on right up into the 18th century. I think Paul, Professor Meindorf said last night that the liturgy is pretty much the way it is by the 11th century. And of course the proscomidi, preparation of the gifts, is a, usually stated as a 14th century edition in, in the present form. But we're talking 18th century. And then when we say order, like the order of confession, akolutheia, order, the present order is really more a compilation. Of course, all services are this in the Byzantine usage. All of them are. All of them. I want to say a few preliminary marks like this just to, to kind of get us loosened up. So in case we're still thinking that things like fell down from heaven to the apostles and then they just do it, we would be, you know, sort of loosened up from that a bit. Uh, all services contain that. You have Vespers, for example. The first part of it includes what's called the pro imiacos psalmos, which is translated means the psalm before the beginning. Prednachinatini. So that means that before you began, 15 minutes went by or something. You know, it depends on the kind of service, like Professor Meindorf said yesterday. But then, then later on, there's the let us depart in peace or bow your heads to the Lord and the prayer of dismissal. But that doesn't dismiss anybody because there's an apostica, there could be a litia, there could be tropadia, there could be readings, there can be food served, etc., etc. So all services have this element. But, but confession reminds me a lot of Compline. It doesn't seem to have... Um, um, uh, the kind of uh, uh, cohesive elements, elements that, that rather tie together the many other elements that are present there. It's, it has less of that. As, as com, if you do Compline, it's more like a collection of everything that you both did during the course of that day, so a lot of stuff is repeated, and a few things you didn't do to finish up the day, sort of that kind of thing. You have prayers before, or, or rather uh, uh, after, uh, dinner, apodipnon, after dinner. So, uh, but confession is very much this, a compilation of prayers, exhortations. See, there are some, some of the things in the order of confession that says, and then the priest says to the penitent. So it's really not like a prayer, you understand me. He's saying it to the penitent. Uh, hymns, penitential hymns. Uh, at once, one time there, were, there, were, uh, there was a reading from the uh, Ezekiel and many other things like that, but hymns and then, of course, a long list of questions which all orders uh, don't include. Uh, this coming from the, more from the monastic tradition, but when you, when you read a, uh, three, like a, there's a three-volume study called Secret Confession in the Eastern Church by uh, Professor Almazov, uh, from Russia, where he shows that there were, you know, at least uh, 11 uh, different orders of confession. And the main differences would be the kind of questions that would be asked, because if it was a, you know, a metropolitan going to confession, it's different than a merchant going to confession. So you'd have the questions sort of tailored. And this indicated that some order had to be put there, and it helped everyday priests who were hearing confessions, uh, just as sacramental functionaries, uh, hearing confessions that, that helped them in the whole 
process and help to make the confession as specific as possible. So that would be the second area. And then the third area would be some remarks about actually going to confession. And of course, this will open up all sorts of things for discussion. So I'll begin uh, by connecting uh, what I want to say to a whole lot of what you've heard so far. Uh, the reviews we've, we've uh, gone through have shown that from the earliest accounts, and I'll say the New Testament, although we, we recognize there's some uh, uh, accounts of the Eucharist which are presently not in the Bible, but are contemporaneous you know, with it. So there was this Eucharistic community. But anyway, going back to the earliest accounts, and here I have in mind the New Testament, a testing, an examination, a confession of one's sins have been connected with participation in the church's Eucharistic meal, with, as we would say today, receiving Holy Communion. So that when we read the account of Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, after he says well, that I received, for, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, etc., and describes the, the uh, you know, in very brief form what they did, and, and as the Lord said, do this in remembrance of me, etc. He goes on to say in verse 27, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I know there was a lot of discussion when this point was thrown out, uh, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Notice it's the body and blood. That's a fact. You've got to deal with that. Um, let a man examine himself. See, examination. Examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And Father Tarazi, of course, concluded all this and developed that last verse. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's like awesome to hear that. And uh, when, you, when you read this text in the Greek, dokimazo, the word that uh, is translated as, uh, as uh, let a man uh, examine himself, means test himself, examine himself prove himself, um, scrutinize himself. These are translations of that word which we find in the Greek lexicon. Then there's the um, often cited uh, verses in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8 uh, through uh, 10, where uh, before we come to those verses, uh, one, two, three, three times in the first seven verses, we find the word kinonia, which we've heard again and again, is synonymous with communion. Communion, not coffee hour, like fellowship, it's translated here. Not, you know, that, that but rather kinonia, com holy communion. They did these things, Father Tom cited the text from Acts 2.42 what they had in common, kinonia, which was the breaking of the bread, the prayers, etc. So 
uh, three times that's cited, and then we have in verse 8, if we say then, it goes on, we have no sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And in addition to kinonia, the operative word here is the word for confession now, hexomologisis. And every time it says it, it says tas hamartias, because hexomologisis is a, it's kind of a, a, a broad, it's a biblical word with all kinds of meanings. It can mean praising God, confessing God, you see. And that's important to even say that because uh, it, it shows that something I'm going to develop as we go along, that, that confession of sins is, has to do with the presence of God, too. It's, you know, as you confess God, there isn't anything to do but to throw yourself down and confess your sins. And whoever is missing that point, I don't know what religion they're in. It isn't the one that I'm reading about here, at least as far as I understand it. Tasamartias, that's sins. James 5.16 is the last verse I will cite. There are others I could cite, but that's a beautiful one because it, it takes the issue of uh, confession, and it's uh, sometimes this, this passage is missed because uh, uh, there are verses preceding this one that uh, are often used in, in connection with the sacrament of holy unction, which I shall mention. You know, why we anoint, anoint the sick, etc. But then it says, therefore, at the, I'll come back to this whole text, but here it says, therefore, confess your sins. Now, to whom? This is important to note early on, again, Professor Meyendorf brilliantly and many times suggested all of this. Confess your sins to one another. To one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Our liturgical prayers uh, let us commend ourselves, each other, and our whole life to Christ. Let's this alilus is the word for uh, one another. And it occurs here and in many places and in a liturgical prayer. It's again and again. You, you don't go to church on your own individual path, independent of everybody. The whole deal includes commending not only yourself, but each other. That is, I commend you and you commend me. And then our whole life, it adds. It means corporately, we commend our whole life to Christ our God. And this is how we're healed. And this includes confessing our sins to one another. But, let me go on. This confession of sins, as difficult as it might sound, and when we hear these early texts, they're staggering to imagine, you know, confess your sins to one another so often this is reduced to some kind of hand-holding ceremony and, you know, it's so trivialized uh, what this all means. One thing it means right now, you can't, you can't just walk in and say, hey, let me tell you all about my sins. You won't understand them. It, it presupposes the building up of knowledge 
of confidence and trust, of love and care, all of which, again, are simply basic features and elements of church life, which mean kinonia. So once more, when you know kinonia, you know all these things. They go together. So this confession of sins is, is it not easy. If St. Isaac the Syrian, Father Stephen, right, you, you cited this in your homily this morning. You cited this particular text. Uh, he says that he who knows his own sins is higher than the man who raises the dead by his prayers. So we're talking about this discernment, this diacrisis, to be able to discern. See, it's, it's an incredible gift itself to be able to do this. But as difficult as it might be, it is only one element, only one element in something much greater and larger, in the all-encompassing, all-shattering, and at the same time, all lifting up and rebuilding reality known as metania, change, repent, repentance. Both John the Baptist in Matthew 3 and Jesus in Matthew 4, another chapter later, begin their preaching by saying, metanoite, repent, repent. Why must you repent? I, I don't want to get off the track, but I don't know, it, I've met people who just somehow, without being able to say why, they, they want to repent. They're, they have some kind of sense. You know, we think repentance means, I don't know, you know about the church. Well, ultimately, it comes to all that, but it may begin in some very distant place, like the prodigal in the pig pen of this life. It said when he came to himself, and I always take note of the fact that coming to himself involved, he got so daggone hungry, he couldn't stand it anymore. And, and he kind of threw all that. And that's, he started to come to himself, and he remembered his father's house. So it can begin, you know, in so many ways, this... The, the, the kingdom of God, as St. Justin uh, said way back, you know, around 150, is, is connected with Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, and the seeds of the Logos, he said, the seminal Logi. They're scattered throughout the world, and they're everywhere all the time in all kinds of things that uh, suggest something, uh, they suggest this world, as Father Schmemann would say, is a, is a sacramental thing. It's the presence in the way we can perceive it of the kingdom of God. And we like to call the church heaven on earth, the revelation of the heavenly through the transfigured earthly, but still earthly. You see. So it's breaking in. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming near you. And just the one, one part about this word, metage, change, and uh, noite is from the word nous, nous. Nous is, means the faculties for feeling, perceiving, 
knowing, understanding, judging, and determining. That's a pretty full table. It's sort of the guts of life, if you will. And we know that this more profound change is provoked then, if we just listen to the text we've read so far, not by some kind of threats of punishment, not to exclude them. Whatever helps, helps. There's good guilt and there's guilt trips, you know. There's many, there's, there's shame and then there's shaming you. There are many ways. We mustn't exclude anything. But fundamentally, this repentance, this bigger, larger, pr more profound change of mind, of faculties, of discernment, of knowing, of determining things, is provoked not by threats of punishment, not by fear or shaming people. God, the different meetings I've gone with human beings trying to struggle with one or another issue in their lives, you know, you go and see what's going on, try to maybe help yourself a little bit. How much those who had churches where there was sacramental confession point their finger at that as one of the primary sources of their problems? Whatever happened there, maybe it's an exaggeration, but like you go there and you just get shamed and you put down and you're... Uh, it, it isn't that way. It doesn't begin like that. Repentance is provoked by the nearness of the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, holiness, peace, joy, truth, and beauty. The beautiful makes you see where you are. Not so beautiful. And the church life is just filled with all of these intuitions. One of my favorite uh, hymns of Holy Week is, is the one where we sing, I see thy bridal chamber adorned, O thy Savior. O my, o my Savior. I see it. I see it. There it is. It's right there. How do we see it? I don't know. There's a priest kneeling down and some lights on, doors open. I mean, it's like Father Tom was saying, you know, you take a photograph of it or a video without the stuff that goes on, and it looks like you know, some funny people wearing funny clothes, kneeling down, whatever. Uh, but when you're there, and you've gone through Lent to get there. So we like to say, let's bring our friends to Holy Week. I'll bring them. God can do whatever. But keep in mind that for us, Holy Week presupposes you went through Lent. And Lent presupposes you went through the preparation for Lent. And we say to our students here, to do that, you've got to go through the first semester. So it presupposes some kind of like rekindling of, of the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the mind and heart to understand. You see what I'm saying? It, 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 something is, is, so I see thy bridal chamber adorned, O my Savior. And then the next part of it. I don't have a wedding garment that I could enter therein. That's what you see when you see that. And of course, the Lord's going to provide that garment for you. In baptism, it's provided. See, it's provided for you. Luke, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, another favorite reading of mine, 
chapter 5, verse 8, the miraculous catch of the fish. It's a fishing thing. What's going on here? The Lord comes into the boat. He showed him how to catch fish. You might say, whatever. You know, it's, you, could, you could look at it in different ways. But when he got in that boat, Peter saw something else. And he fell down before Jesus. Don't be afraid to fall down in church. Sometimes we, we, uh, we can get confused here. For example, in the presanctified liturgy, we have this procession with the consecrated gifts. And as Professor Meindorf points out, you know, these are functional things. You've got to get gifts from here to there. But after you do that for about a thousand years, you start falling down. Or at some point during that time, you start to fall down. Because there's a moment of repentance there. I can't be near you. I can't. What you are is other. It's other. You did everything to get under my feet and wash them. You went to Hades and when you yelled out from the beginning when God called Adam, where are you? You went there and answered even. You did everything. Nevertheless, you know, that's a key word in the prayer that the priest says for himself at the Trubic hymn, Abache. Nevertheless, he's still God. You can't be near him. You know, you just kind of throw yourself down. So Peter goes, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And he fell down. And proskinesis, worship. Come, let us worship, you know. You fall down. Father Yelchanina, bringing us up to date here, he has this diary of a Russian priest. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Collection of sayings about all sorts of different things. He has a beautiful, beautiful saying about confession. Where he says, confession is a thirst for purification. Now that sounds good. You could put that on Pondfield Road in Bronxville. Thirst for purification. Come in, Father Paul Lazer. Check me out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, three apples a day, cut in three pieces, and you know, give you a whole recipe. Orthodoxy, again, as I said in my homily yesterday, you know, it's, it's the uh, supermarket of the leafy religion, if you want it to be that way. Uh, so, you know, he says, uh, it's a thirst for purification, but then the next part, springing from, springing from, an awareness of what is holy. How does Father Tom say it? You're in and you're out. First of all, Father Tom, you've got to convince us it has meaning. Something like that is implied here. There is something there. Then maybe something else will happen. Obviously, such repentance cannot be forced nor can it be reduced to a periodic formality, as often happens in that kind of stodgy, often boring word known as parish life. And parish, you know, a corporation on Washington Street somewhere, founded in by glorifying endlessly its founders who did such good things. Um, Everything becomes somehow uh, 
what you do to be in good standing, you know, all that kind of stuff goes on. It has often become such a formality uh, and such, of course, a, a, a diminution of what repentance really is all about. Repentance involves our freedom, our freedom, not a formality, our freedom. God forbid that your or my membership in the church is reduced to the treasurer's stamp on our annual membership card, without which we can't go to communion, I mean confession, and of course without that no communion, without that no in good standing. Funny to say a parishioner is in good standing when actually parishioner parikos in Greek means an alien. You're never in good standing. Parikia is a gathering of aliens, sojourners, temporary residents. They're on their way somewhere else. And the church is on its way somewhere else. That's what it's all about. It's a foretaste of what that is, and it's at the same time the pilgrimage to it. So be a good parishioner. See? Um, let alone other formalities, you know, buy your candle, give it to the priest. One, one person in charge of the candle desk told me just, you know, this is over the last year, that when a person comes with a candle that's a cheaper one, notice we have like 50 cent and $1 ones, if you bring the 50 cent one, the priest sends him back. So he'll bring the dollar one. Because then he takes the candles and he hands them in. And then he gets a dollar for each one of the confessions. So you get like, that's like a sort of like a nice quiet way of getting paid for a confession. Don't knock it. <laughs> but anyway, it goes on. It's just like part of the formality is accepted. What's the big deal? You know, it's, you gotta, he's doing, giving your time. You pay him something. Um, it involves human freedom. How can we acknowledge? What is this? What do we do? Is it the O.J. Simpson trial? You know, you kind of, you got to corner the person until they finally acknowledge, but of course, they don't have to testify. And they go free. You know, whatever you think about it. Repentance involves human freedom and faith. Our freedom acted out in faith relative to a loving, merciful, and forgiving God. So to come back to what I said, you know, just saying I did a sin or something or other, whatever you think that might be, uh, St. John Climacus says, any remembrance of sin, it's good to know that you've sinned, but then he adds, not coupled with a remembrance of God's mercy, so acknowledgement, however great, is but one element. Any remembrance of sin not coupled with the remembrance of God's mercy, here's the, here's the, the knockout, is from the devil. What's the unforgiven sin, the one you don't seek forgiveness for? I'm too sinful to go to confession. Fundamentally, that is, if we go back to these beginnings again, repentance in the broader, formal life of the church uh, was connected with baptism. So I mentioned faith, faith in this merciful God. So you had to know what this faith is and who's this merciful God. So you're trained. There was a catechumenate. 
Katakuo, I listened. I listened. It has to do with, you know, the ear. You listen. And then you embrace it. And your embracing is a grace-filled entry into the church known as baptism, chrismation, etc. The different ways that people are received into the church. And of course, huge and very instructive for us to this day, penitential seasons of the church, the model of which is, again, Great Lent, were developed initially as times to give the final preparation to people known as catechumens who were about to be baptized. For several centuries, and again, this, this fact was cited by several speakers, Orthodox, well, would-be Orthodox Christians held to the practice that just as baptism was one, I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins, so confession, repentance, conversion was a one-time experience which was not repeated. And you have this text, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, no one who abides in him, that is in Christ, sins. So as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Once it happens, there's no more sin. No one sins. Could you sin after putting on Christ? The emperor Constantine one of the more famous examples cited, there are others, you heard about them, delayed his baptism to his deathbed. After all, he was emperor. Imagine the decisions that he had to make. He delayed his baptism to his deathbed. Of course, people do sin after their baptism. Our lives go on, and our metania, our change of our mind, our heart, our perception, our judgment, our determinations, etc., must be tested. As Professor Verhovskoy, our beloved uh, deceased professor of dogmatic theology, liked to say, there is no final goodness which is an untested goodness. So one's repentance would be tested, and often the test begins in church, at the doors of the church. I mean, there's no, the devil doesn't know any limits. He just, you know, fishes around everywhere trying to catch us constantly. There's this contest of the two atoms going on all the time within us. The old and the new Adam. All the time until the Adam, the the final Adam, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes in all his glory. This testing is exactly what goes on between our baptism and our death. Saint Seraphim of Saraf uh, wrote about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, which we read in Holy Week. We find that in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, let me read some parts of this, what he writes. Uh, it's in the little Russian Philokalia, if you want to read it yourself. It says, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, when the foolish ones lacked oil, 
it was said, go and buy in the market. The market, he says, is life. So, go to life. Life, that's where you buy the oil. But when they had bought, the door of the bride chamber was already shut. And they could not get in. Some say that the lack of oil in the lamps of the foolish virgins meant a lack of good deeds in their lifetime. Such an interpretation is not quite correct. Why should they be lacking in good deeds if they are called virgins, even though foolish ones? And this is a little bit what, again, we, there was no preliminary discussion that Father Stephen in his homily suggested many of the things that I'm saying right now. Virginity, he, Seraphim says, is the supreme virtue, an angelic state, and it could take the place of all the other good works. It's tied in with that singularity of the eye, you know, that I was talking about myself a few days ago. So he goes on, he says, I, the humble one, think that what they were lacking was the grace of the all-holy spirit of God. These virgins practiced the virtues, but in their spiritual ignorance, they supposed that the Christian life consisted merely in doing good works. By doing a good deed, they thought they were doing the work of God. But they cared little whether they acquired thereby the grace of God's Holy Spirit. Such ways of life based merely on doing good without carefully testing. That word comes up again that we heard in the very beginning text that I cited. Whether they bring the grace of the Holy Spirit are mentioned in the patristic books. And here he cites Proverbs. There is another way which appears as good at the beginning, but it ends at the bottom of hell. So watch out. And he goes on to talk about three wills. That is, the devil, yourself, and God. And how everything must be confirmed to God's will. And so he says that uh, the first of these, God's all-saving will, consists in doing good solely to acquire the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. Fools in this world, inexhaustible treasure which cannot be valued rightly. The acquisition of the Holy Spirit is, so to say, the oil which the foolish virgins lacked. And the good deed must be done, and I'm, I'm jumping way, way ahead here. He says the good deed is a, is, is a good deed because it's done for no other reason than for Christ's sake, period. There isn't anything else connected with it. Not self-display, not your parish corporation, not racking up points, nothing. It's focused on loving the other with the same love with which God has loved you and with which you try to love God. How do you know that you are my disciples if you love one another? How can you say you love God that you don't see 
if you don't love. That means you give your life all the time for your brother or your sister whom you see. So this is a very instructive section because it tells us the marketplace is life, the gates of that life are death, and we're asked the question, will we have enough oil in our lamps to enter the chamber with the bridegroom when he comes? And in Holy Week we're singing it, behold the bridegroom comes at midnight. How nice it would be if we could time that coming to, let's see, let's have it next year, Tuesday of Holy Week. But it won't be. You'll be on your, bathroom, on your way to the bathroom to wash your hands. Something like that. You'll be rounding a curve, God forbid, it happens, you know, in a highway and that's it. 